Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're right at the beginning of chapter 35 on page 355. And the chapter heading is Expansion and the subheading is Reverie. I um, asked you to be patient with me. Sometimes I trip over my words. But let's enjoy the words of Joseph Smith III. Enjoy. In taking up the lines of memory as they have been stimulated by the recurring items of my memorandum and looking back over the year, I have just recorded and forward to 1899. I am lost in reverie over the many evidences of the great and gradual increase in the church, far and near therein discernibly or discernible. These accessions and expansions resulted in greatly multiplied and diversified activities in all phases of the ministerial programme in which I had a part. Correspondence was much augmented, editorial labours more exacting, presiding duties much heavier, and perplexing problems noticeably increased. More travelling was required, more branches desired visits, more churches needed dedicating, and council committee and consultation meetings became more and more frequent as plans and projects multiplied surprisingly. Altogether, my life was filled to the brim with duties always at elbow, and few indeed were the opportunities offered me to leisurely drift with the current, or watch from the shore or sidelines the activities of others. When the church numbered but a few hundred members, it had been a comparatively easy matter to keep track of where I went, whom I met, and what I did, but when the diary reveals a year so crowded with events, as were these of the period about which I am now writing, I scarcely know how or where to begin. Needless to say, this growth is a source of much gratification to me. In retrospect, I review once more our small beginnings. I see our church with its small holding of members in western Iowa, a few in Illinois, a scattered congregation or so in northern Indiana or southern Wisconsin, with here and there a small group in the east or west. I see the greater portion of these members as comparatively poor, labourers of the soil, many wearing homespun and careless of appearances or the niceties of dress and social usage, many with no permanent home or place to call their own, and others just waiting for the cry they so confidently expected. Arise and come to Zion, all ye people. And now, how conditions have changed. Everywhere there have been large ascensions to our congregations, and the improvement in appearances and circumstances is most marked. Cleanliness of person and meeting house is the rule. Everywhere is expressed an eagerness for study and intellectual and spiritual advancement, and quite universally are seen the evidences of a prosperity and assurance not always found in early days. These things, together with the wide scope and varied nature of the activities into which the church was merging during the period of which I write, cause me to wonder if I shall be able to adequately cover the ground that remains in recalling the events of my past. One of the comments made by the Saviour to his followers was that while they were to be in the world, they should not be of the world. The building of the church in latter, day, in latter days under the events of inspiration begun by the angel's message and the reception of the Book of Mormon had gradually forced its work into public recognition everywhere. Further, the antagonism consistently held by the reorganised church towards the Western hierarchy commonly called Mormon, with its doctrines and practices so justly condemned by Joseph Smith as being damnable and cursed, and by the Lord as being an abomination, had frequently brought our leading offices into public notice and honourable recognition. 
these favourable conditions brought rapidly multiplying opportunities which we were not slow to embrace and appreciate. The next heading, a cornerstone. At the opening of the year 1899, I was invited to participate in the ceremony of laying of the cornerstone of the State Historical Building in Des Moines. The courtesy came through the kindness of curator Charles Aldrich, with whom I had some acquaintance. The services were to have been conducted on the Capitol grounds entirely, but owing to bad weather, a part of them were transferred to the Capitol building, which hindered, to some extent, the fullest enjoyment of the event. However, what ceremonies must of necessity be performed in the open air were accomplished in spite of the handicap of weather and were witnessed by a great throng. Upon this occasion, I met many of the notable men of the state, some of whom, such as Governor Leslie M. Shaw, I had known before. Ex-Governors Jackson and Drake I knew by sight. A number of others were met for the first time, including Senator William B. Allison and some speakers of the occasion, J. M. Holland, J. A. Hassan, A. W. Hildreth and T. S. Parvin. Following the exercises, there was a reception given to Governor Shaw in the, Sa the Savary Hotel. It proved to be rather unsuccessful from some viewpoints, in spite of the fact, fact it was managed by an officer of the War Department. We were instructed to pass up a wide stairway to the main hall, fall into line, pass around the rotunda and into a series of smaller parlours, and there greet the executive, other dignitaries and honoured guests who, with their wives, stood ready to receive us. It sounded good, but perhaps due to the unexpectedly large crowds, it proved to be a clumsy performance. I went into line just behind one of the state officers, Lieutenant Governor Milliman, who, for some reason, had not been assigned a place in the receiving line or else had not yet reached it. By actual timing, it was three quarters of an hour before I succeeded in passing from the head of the stairs through the parlour where Governor Shaw, where Governor Shaw stood, and out into the rotunda again. From there, the only possible exit had to be made by bolting through the dense line of people still pouring up the up the stairway. In about five minutes from the time I passed Governor Shaw, all at once I found myself in front of him again very much to the surprise of both of us. It seems he had been crowded completely out of his place in the receiving room and, like the rest of us, was being pushed aimlessly about by the milling throngs in the rotunda. He called out, Mr Smith, again, remembering that I had already passed him. He shook hands with me again, smilingly, as did also Senator Allison, who stood near, and we entered into a little chat. Governor Jackson was also in the group, a man whom I had once seen in the company of Honourable William McKinley when the latter delivered an address at Council Bluffs during a campaign. Everything and everybody seemed in confusion, though it was good-natured enough. The whole affair was miserably managed, as I thought, for a state function and it was with distress of mind that I finally squeezed myself out of the pressing crowds and went to my lodgings. The memory of that governor's reception is still tinged disagreeably with some disgust and disappointment as details of the uncomfortable experience come to light. Upon the occasion of this visit, I was conversing with curator Aldrich in his office and noted upon the wall the portraits of a number of officers and pioneers of the state i suggested that i would be glad to furnish an oil painting of my father if he would care to have it included in the collection recognising that my father had been a part and parcel as it were of the history of iowa in the years from eighteen thirty nine to eighteen forty four since his followers had spread all over that territory he said he would be glad to have such a portrait I promised to try and secure one. In passing, it may be added that this promise was carried out and a fair copy of the oil painting in my possession was made by Victor Cress of Pittsburgh, considered a good artist and was presented to the Historical Department of Iowa, accepted by creator 
Aldridge. It still hangs, I am told, upon the walls of the picture gallery in the building devoted to that department. I understood that Mr Aldridge, in placing it there, had to combat rather strongly the prejudices of some narrow-minded pulpit orators who objected strenuously against so honouring the founder of Mormonism. A similar copy of this painting was made at the same time for the church and is cared for in the presidency's office at headquarters. Next heading, Colorado. There was no general conference in 1899, but from May 26th to June 28th, I was in Independence, busy with councils and affairs connected with church management. Following this was a visit to Colorado. At Ray, an excellent work had been started by Brethren O.B. Thomas, J.B. Roche, E.D. Bullard, Tabor and local elders. There I spent a number of days holding special services. This was the first opportunity I had had for making the acquaintances of our promising young missionary, John B. Rushk. Associating with him in this series, I insisted that he should preach the first sermon, my object being to discover how the foundations of the work had been laid there. His opening effort proved a masterly one and gave me the cue I desired, and I followed along gospel lines, building upon the platform he laid down. Two were baptised as a result of these meetings. Services also services were also held at Stirling, where Brother George M. McConley was living. He was a county officer and sufficiently interested in our work to procure a place for holding meetings. Elder Rusk joins me in this series. Also, some opposition had been offered, but Brother McConley's standing in the community ensured a respectful and uninterrupted hearing and we had attentive audiences. Among the listeners was Archibald Wilsey, son of A.M. Wilsey, who lived near Plano when I was a resident there. Archibald and his brother had failed in some business venture at Plano and falling into some disrespute, let me start that again, and falling into some disrepute had left the country. So I was pleased to find him here at Stirling, quite respectably employed and apparently well cured of a tendency to waywardness. The attention he gave me during my short stay there was well appreciated too. Brother George McConley's son, Myron A, developed his talents here at Stirling and was afterwards with Brother Bert Barrett appointed to labour as a missionary in the Society Islands, where he served very credibly. He is still in the mission field, though not so far away. It is with regret that I recalled in reviewing the memories of this effort made at Ray and Stirling that neither the excellent brother Ed Bullard nor the promising young John Rusk were privileged to long survive, and we felt that the church indeed suffered a distinct loss in their passing. A visit to Denver ensued, where I was to enjoy a somewhat lengthy sojourn filled with both pleasure and duties. Much of the time was spent with the Shoup, Schmitz and Lewis families, who, since it was my first day in the western capital, were much pleased to show me the sights. I enjoyed climbing the stairs at the State House and viewing the surrounding country from its top. The scenery is unique and varied, with plains on one side and mountains on the other. A week of preaching at a little mountain resort west of the city afforded me many novel experiences whilst I was the guest of Brother James Kemp. The days were pleasantly warm and the nights comfortably cool. We returned by wagon to the railroad road town of Morrison. On this journey I recall witnessing some predatory movements of a wild animal. Passing a ranch from which the inhabitants appeared to be temporarily absent, we saw a sly and slinking coyote creep warily down the slope of the hillside and rush into a flock of chickens. 
Seizing a good-sized hen between his teeth, he galloped back to his retreat in the mountain brush, leaving much fluttering confusion and squawking among the fowls he had disturbed in the barnyard. On this unique wagon journey, too, I noticed many species of flowers, new and interesting to me. Among them was the dainty blue and white Columbine, Colorado's much-boasted state flower. I confess they seemed to me to have too frail and delicate a beauty to have been chosen to represent a strong, virile and sturdy state. On further reflection, I recall that some of the legislative enactments of Colorado have been of a chimerical and transitory nature, perhaps quite in harmony after all with its floral emblem. However, as I am not writing a treatise on politics or legislative incongruities, I leave it to someone else to pursue the analogy further. While waiting for the train at Morrison, I was interested in watching an expert horsewoman dash up, galloping furiously through, sorry, though easily on her splendid agile mountain pony. She sat cowboy fashion, wore gauntlets and divided skirts and used energetically a rawhide quirt. She alighted at the post office, went in and got her mail, reappeared and thrown herself on her steed with all the alacrity and abandon of a true cowpuncher, wheeled about and went dashing away to her home at a long sloping gallop. Arriving at Denver, I was again the guest of Brother Lewis and family. Further surveys of the city and visits to places of interest were again interspersed with official and ministerial labours. The parents of Sister Lewis were Brother and Sister Joseph Schmutz, two very excellent and active church members, the mother being especially busy with the affairs of the Sunday school and religion. There were four daughters whom I met and a son Joseph, who was in ill health and died soon after. Besides these, there was the young daughter who was the wife of Elder W, sorry, of Elder J. W. Gilbert and was absent with him on a mission to the South Sea Islands. It was Brother Gilbert who, when a storm and tidal wave on one of those islands destroyed the water supply, by his knowledge of chemistry and his mechanical genius was able to contrive a condensing apparatus by means of which he succeeded in furnishing the inhabitants with wholesome drinking water until such time as the waves subsided, more normal conditions prevailed and the usual springs again sent pure water to the surface. Through the influence of Joseph Smuts, I met a recluse by the name of William H. Sutcliffe, who had become enamoured of some sort of East Indian cult and its theories. He gave me a number of tracts he had written. While he considered me a modern religious crank, I very safely put him down as a dreamer who had become bewildered and was lost in the meshes of an old philosophy of metaphysics. He was waiting for a deliverer of mankind to come from the Far East and died for the second coming of a redeemer who had already been in the flesh and made offering for the race. Among my callers at this time was Andrew Christian, brother-in-law of my second wife, Bertha. At his invitation, I accompanied him to his home, where his sister was housekeeper for him. They were both quite aged, he being past 82, though still actively engaged in his accustomed profession repairing and upholstering fine furniture. I was pleased to see him again, though he had lived for a number of years estranged from his wife, me and Anna Madison. Next heading, St. Joseph. The homeward trip I recall as being unique from the fact that I was the only passenger in a magnificent railway coach. I remember too that the conductor was making his first run after a long seas of illness. The ride was very pleasant for the time of the year. We reached St. Joseph in the afternoon of June the 28th and there I stayed for a while 
as was quite usual for me, with the family of Brother George Best, old-time friends from Montrose. For many years, there were in the family the mother, Sarah, her son, George W., with wife, Carrie, and their daughter, Pearl, and son, George Jr. When I began preaching in 1860, George Best was a river pilot. He was commonly called Zack and was quite a character with marked peculiar peculiarities. He and his family joined the church and at St. Joseph were active in its work. He received a good salary for his labour there in a prominent mill. Not long before this visit of 1899, his mother, Sister Sarah E. Best, had passed into the great beyond. He secured a promise from me to come at some time not too far away and preach a sermon in her memory. This promise I fulfilled on the 23rd of July following the visit I made in passing on my return from Colorado. The service was attended by a large number of friends and neighbours who had known and respected her and I trust some good seed was sown. The next heading, Cape Cod. Going east between August 2nd and September 12th, I was kept busy in the Mashutes district, attending a reunion at Cape Cod the last week or more of that period. In addition to the usual official labours, there was given considerable opportunity at that gathering for social activities and recreation, the latter chiefly sea bathing. The little company with which I was associated at the home of Brother Wixon, a sailor off at sea at the time, included Brethren William H. Kelly, Joseph Luff and Holmes J. Davison and sisters Kate Blood and Julia Glover. Sister Wixon took excellent care of us, as did Sister J. Long, where we took our meals, both sisters, of course, receiving in money the equivalent of their outlay for our comfort. A number of delicious fish dinners are remembered, as I recall the occasion, and a dish called Blueberry Slump, which was very popular with us, a biscuit formation covered with luscious blueberries then in season a group picture of this little reunion family was taken in the shade of the trees and has served as an excellent memorandum of the pleasant company there was plenty of jollity among us i recall a conundrum propounded by brother luff why is elder john smith like a cape cod mosquito the entire crowd including brother myron h bond Gave it up after a number of wild guesses. Because he is after blood. This brought confusion and blushes to two of our number. But after events proved Brother Luff was right in his premises. For Sister Kate Blood was indeed captured by Brother John Smith. And their marriage was the beginning of many years of happy companionship. They are well known to the saints in the east as well as in Lamoni, their later residents. An amusing incident anent this particular courtship flourishing at this reunion occurred one evening. Brother John had escorted Sister Kate to her stopping place and started back to his when he saw, jumping along the path under the trees bordering the ground, a small kitten, as he supposed. It neglected to get out of his way, and being doubtless in that dreamy, speculative mood typical of his suitor, very much in love, he rather impatiently kicked the little animal out of his path. The result was amazing, and he had to bury his clothing, for it proved to be a very retaliative Cape Cod skunk, whose peace and dignity he had outraged. The incident afforded great fun for us, Brother Smith and his lady love appreciating the joke as well as anyone. While bathing in the ocean one day, Brother Ed H. Fisher went beyond his step, was caught in the undertow, and but for the timely assistance of Brother Nickerson would have lost his life. These afternoon bathing sports attracted numbers of notable friends to the coast reunion and were indulged in quite universally by all attendants. I recall among them Frank Bussell, a popular man of Boston, who was present with his daughter. 
John Gilbert, wife and daughter Susie, sister Aura B. Holmes and a great many other saints from points up and down the coast. Next heading, Plymouth. From the reunion I went at the wish of Nehemiah Nickerson to Plymouth. Brother Luff accompanied me and we took great pleasure in going about the old historic town and examining the many relics of a bygone people. On the inside of one of the old houses, possibly that, that of John Alden, I noted many evidences of the primitive processes of life's activity among those thrifty people from Holland. There was the inclined cellarway down which went the little carts loaded with milk, bound for the basement churning place. There was the kitchen with its corner sink chiselled into shape from a huge rock, the basin four and a half inches deep by two feet or more across, a spout at one corner and held against the wall by a wooden prop. There was the old-fashioned stove or range with its massive oven, though we noticed with regret that the introduction of some modern improvements was spoiling the unique interest of the relic. I noticed the garret rafters, black with age, made from limbs which still held the sheathing on which the original shingles were nailed. Their houses were odd in shape, most of them having hip roofs. They stood about without fences or gardens on little elevations in the midst of short grass and shaded by large and beautiful trees, evidently the remains of the wonderful forest that crowned these hills when first the Puritan wayfarers beheld them. It was a pleasure for me to see the famous Plymouth Rock or that particular piece of rock which has either been identified as the original one or substituted for it. It was enclosed with an iron fence and kept under lock and key and ward. At the time of our visit, one of our church brothers, a Scandinavian, was in charge of the historic spot. He very kindly opened the gate and allowed us to enter and to stand upon this very much revered stone. It lay some paces from the water's edge, having evidently been moved from the place on the beach he had occupied when the Mayflower passengers used it as a stepping stone for our threshold to their new home in the land of the free. On the hillside I saw the old church where these sturdy pilgrims had worshipped and read the inscriptions on the gravestones in the old burial place, some of which indicated that those who slept beneath had passed from earth in the devastating sickness of that first bleak winter of 1620-21. to 21. We passed down a narrow winding path toward the bay, where in a small valley a house with a brick shed attached is pointed out as one which sheltered Elder Brewster's Spring, mentioned by Governor Bradford in his history of the Puritan settlement at Plymouth. We drank eagerly and quite reverentially from these waters, realising faintly what a cause for rejoicing and thankfulness it must have furnished those ocean-tossed wayfarers. One day I enjoyed a visit to the cordage works where hemp and manila fibred cables were made, including the great horses used by large steamers. I had often wondered how these immense ropes were made, but it seemed simple as explained and demonstrated there, from the pressing out of the dirt in the raw hemp to the finished article. In passing along the halls I saw one which must have been four and a half or five inches in diameter, Possibly by this time, who knows, steel cables have taken the place of such hemp and manila ropes as I saw manufactured at the Plymouth Cordage Works. That particular day of sightseeing ended with a picnic and a clam bake on the shore with the usual preaching service later. The next heading, A Blessing. Shortly before I came east on this trip, Viola, youngest child of my daughter Audentia and her husband, died of diphtheria. This unexpected trouble had brought us all much grief and sorrow, 
and now here at Plymouth I received a wire from my wife stating that my daughter Lucy was critically ill with the same dread disease and was isolated in one part of the house to which none but the doctor and nurse had access. It is unnecessary to attempt to describe my feelings and anxiety. My impulse was to start for home at once, but then came the thought that I was a servant of the master and was about his business, that were I at home I could do nothing more for the child than was being done, except to pray and that I could do here. So in company with my travelling companion, Brother Luff, I repaired to a secluded spot on that bay shore, out of sight and hearing of other human beings. There we bowed down upon the seaweed and scattered shingle and appealed the case of my suffering girl and my anxious companion in their isolation and danger to the care of him who doeth all things well. I arose from my knees with all the pain and apprehension lifted from my heart, no further concern or anxiety over the results of the affliction oppressed me, for I was assured that our pleas had been heard and would be mercifully and tenderly answered. A second message coming early next day informed me that the crisis was past and that my daughter was out of danger. For this great blessing I was constrained to thank God in deep humility and without flowing love. The next heading, Other Points East. My next visit was to Providence, where I called upon Brother Joy, who had been severely burned in an explosion. He was suffering greatly, but was very patient. It was thought he was improving, but this improvement was only apparent, for not long afterwards he passed away. On August the 19th, we enjoyed a boating excursion to Crescent Park, going thither on the Baltimore and returning on the Warwick. This outing included sea bathing, of which I was very fond. In the party were my brother Alexander, F.M. Sheehy and daughter Ruth, the Fishers, Bonds and perhaps others whose names escape memory. The next day we assisted in the dedication of a church built there by the saints over whom Elder George Smith presided. It was an all-day meeting in which most of the brethren I have mentioned in connection with this visit to the East participated. I was much pleased with my visit and the acquaintance made with so many of the saints there. It was pleasant too to refresh my memory regarding the origin of the plantation and its founding by Roger Williams when the unco-righteous Puritans would have imprisoned him for his very rebellious notions and fled their vicinity. I will start that again. For his very rebellious notions, and he fled their vicinity. The principal crime of their leader, as I recall, was that he favoured a complete separation of church and state governments. It should be added that during the few days of my presence in Providence, I was the guest of Brother M. H. Bond. The journey to Fall River proved very pleasant, as we made it via the big steamer Robert Borden. I went aboard at three in the afternoon and secured comfortable quarters upon the deck from which point of vantage I could watch the progress of the boat along the coast and enjoy the swish and swash of the water on its side on its sides. It was early evening when I reached Fall River and by street car was conveyed to the home of Dr John Gilbert in time for supper. There I was domiciled for my brief stay in the city, the days of which were spent in filling appointments, visiting and riding about with my host and his family as he made his rounds of professional calls. He was the city physician and a man of stability and worth. We visited the city hall, the city hospital and the poor farm. In my ministerial duties at this place, I was assisted by my brother Alexander. Fall River was bedecked with flags, for this August the 24th seemed to be a gala day, with bands and parades in much evidence. There was also a pageant in the high school building, which I was pleased to witness. All these features accompanied a notable meet of the Veteran Firemen's Association. 
A portion of the day's festivities, however, had to be carried out in a downpour of rain. It was here I got acquainted with Thomas Whiting and his family. He gave me a copy of Governor Bradford's History of the Plymouth Colony, which pleased me very much. I wrote of my experiences on this visit in considerable detail for the Herald issues of the period. From Fall River, I went to Boston, where I was for several days the guest of Brother Owen Newcomb at Arlington Heights. One day, a party of saints went to the seashore for an outing arranged by Brother Frank Bussell. Brother Bullard and I lost track of the others in some manner, and at noon found ourselves at Marblehead, with none of our friends in sight. We contented ourselves by going into a restaurant and regaling ourselves upon oyster stew, which, while it lacked the zest of a picnic meal partaken of in the midst of merry converse and repartee, was satisfying to our present hunger. We suffered no real harm in having missed our crowd and had the pleasure and profit of much quiet chat together. Marblehead was simply a small collection of dwellings built upon the rocky seashore. The name recalled a poem I had once read about a man who was tarred and feathered and dragged through the streets of Marblehead at the tail of a cart. I was glad such such practices had long since been banished to the oblivion of time. Our services in Boston were held in the chapel on Broadway and my stay extended from August the 28th to September the 4th when I went to Wheeling. There I met my son Israel, then engaged in work for the Bell Telephone Company. We were dinner guests at Brother O.J. Tarry and enjoyed an excellent fish repast. We visited the State Fair in the afternoon where our sister Molly Brewster managed a refreshment booth. I had long known Sister Brewster, an active member of the church, but had never met her husband and had come to feel some curiosity about him. This time I met him and discovered that through some weakness of character, the main burden of labour and responsibility for the family welfare rested upon the wife. She had become accustomed to his failings, however, and was very devoted and faithful to him cheerfully working to save him all the trouble she could, a noble, loyal woman, such as have existed in many ages and localities. A large family of Ebelings lived here, the mother a widow with sons Francis, Jay, Joseph and others. I here met the doctor who attended brother Josiah Ells in his illness and heard from that gentleman an, an eulogy upon the character of that veteran brother. While not a believer in the gospel as we understood it, the physician admitted that in his life, conduct and teaching, Brother Ells was a true and sincere Christian after the New Testament pattern. The acknowledgement was made with a suspicion of tears in the eyes and much earnestness of manner. It was a pleasure to hear this tribute to an old faithful saint of the missionary ranks. After ministering to the saints at Wheeling, as opportunity afforded, I proceeded to Coriola, Ohio. Missing connections at Columbus, nightfall overtook me and I found myself in the large city without a single memorandum as to the whereabouts of any of our people there. Because the state fair was in full swing at the time, I discovered the hotels and boarding houses were full to overflowing. As I wandered from house to house, seeking a lodging for the night, I met a kind old gentleman who asked me if I was looking for a place to stay. When answered in the affirmative, he took me to his own home, where I was very kindly entertained for supper, bed and breakfast. In the morning, as I bade my kind protector goodbye, I was led to ponder on how essential it was for a man with a poor memory of numbers, dates and streets to keep a good, up-to-date memorandum book, However, again in an hour of necessity, I had been cared for and I reached my destination more refreshed by the unexpected little interlude at Columbus than I would otherwise have been. Then too, I had been permitted a little time to visit the fair, always interesting to me. At Crayola, I met a little band of saints under the ministry of Brother A.B. Kirkendall, 
then station agent and probate judge, which latter office my son informs me he still holds. Here, brother W.H. Kelly was associated with me in a two-day conference in which labours also Reverend James Muller, T.J. Jeffries and others shared. I was glad to meet these saints and to help them dedicate a neat little chapel, a monument to the devotion and faithful labours of the small band of believers at that place. There was a noted disbeliever at Crayola who had expressed a desire to meet me, stating that he felt sure if I were a sensible man, he could easily convince me of the error of our doctrines. I met him at the home of Brother Kirkendall, and we had quite a talk. He later came to the church where we held services, but failed to open up any discussion or to make any attack upon me. He frankly admitted subsequently to several people that he found he had made a mistake as to our faith itself, and more especially as to the position I had assumed in regard to certain principles. Next heading. A convalescent trip. After these experiences in the east, I returned home, reaching that shelter on September the 12th. I found my daughter Lucy convalescent, but very wan and weak from the ravages of the disease which had held her and the seemingly vigorous treatment administered by doctors John J. Hansen and Bertha A. Greer. The quarantine placed upon the home had been distressing. But Liberty Hall was so situated and its rooms so arranged that no matter which way the wind blew, there was nothing to prevent plenty of ventilation. The nurse had been competent. Isolation between the invalid's quarters and the apartments occupied by the other members of the family had been adequately managed and the contagion had spread no further among us. I had felt keenly the loneliness and anxiety and suffering which these loved ones had passed through. Upon comparing notes, we discovered that at almost the exact hour in which Brother Luff and I, on the bleak and desolate seashore, had engaged in earnest supplication for them, there had come a decided change for the better in the condition of the patient, which explained and justified the sense of calm assurance and freedom from worry that had come over me. For all this, I felt to praise and glorify God, and to repeat again, in a renewal of fervour, the words, I will trust him through though he slay me. Believing that an outing would prove beneficial to my daughter and interesting to my wife, I made the necessary arrangements and we went to the reunion in Western Iowa. We took our small son, R.C., as we generally called him, with us, his baby carriage being along with our other impedimenta. Through the kind hospitality of Brother Charles Kemish, we were located for sleeping quarters at his house and during the day had the use of his large tent. He himself was kept from the meetings through sickness, but had provided near the entrance to the ground a commodious tent for the use of his family and guests. Sister Kemish was the best of hostesses and royally provided for our needs and comfort. On this occasion, it was a pleasure to introduce my wife, young daughter and small son to so many of my old-time friends and champions of the faith, as well as to a great number of young people there. John Pett, Sidney Pitt, Charles Kemish, Charles Derry, Gideon Hawley, Oliver Holcomb and many, many others who with their families make too long a list for mention here but constituted much of the personnel of the reunions in those days. The year had been very dry, and the grounds were covered with great clouds of dust, set into offensive motion by the traffic of the afternoons and evenings. The meetings were largely attended, even for this ever-popular reunion, and overflow sessions were held in small tents, Men like Isaac M. Smith, J.S. Roth, Wardell Christie and other vigorous missionaries profitably occupying therein. Veterans like myself upon whom rested the burdens of presidency and management were often pretty well worn out by the close of the day. E. L. Kelly, I. M. Smith assisted me in these presiding duties. It was estimated that 1,200 conveyances were on the grounds the last Sunday 
My wife was very favourably impressed with the people, and the crowd was the largest gathering for religious purposes she had ever seen. The fact that I was there with her and willingly pushed the baby cart about, as any properly trained young husband might do, created considerable good-humoured comments and raillery, to which I was happy to respond in like measure. On our way home, we visited the Omaha Trans-Mississippi Fair, being conducted about the grounds by Brother Calvin Beebe. We spent several profitable hours there, seeing, among other things, a representation of Indian life, a sham battle between the Redskins and the Whites, for instance, which gave my wife her first glimpse of what our Western savages were like. We agreed the entertainment and diversion at this exposition were beneficial to all of us, including the convalescent girl. We had a good lunch on the grounds and later started on our journey home. Next heading, Three Oaks. One of the unique expeditions upon which my ministerial labours called me that year was to the little village of Three Oaks, east of Michigan City and in the vicinity of Galleon, Michigan. It was for the purpose of dedicating a church purchased by an eccentric brother named Cyrus Thurston. He was a retired farmer with wife, grown children and some means, which later he wished to retain or to spend according to his own specific ideas. Through some loans he had come into possession of some property at Three Oaks and in some way had secured a church building vacated by a failing minister and congregation. He thought this an opportunity to have the gospel preached to his neighbours and was willing to put some hundreds of dollars into the project. Thus we were invited to come and dedicate the building, which we were glad to do. The service was in charge of Bishop George A. Smith, district president, who lived but a few miles away. Ample advertisement was made and notices circulated. At Brother Thurston's special wish, Bishop Kelly came to assist in the dedication and to offer the dedicatory prayer. Services were held throughout the week and the whole affair was quite a gratification to Brother Thurston. Though a large number of his neighbours heard the gospel through this effort, and though the people all through that section of the country were religiously inclined to a greater or lesser extent, that hearing and that inclination did not result in their affiliation with the organisation that on that occasion presented its interpretation of the New Tem uh, Testament scriptures. I believe the church building dedicated at that time is not now occupied. Some services were held at, in Galleon during and succeeding this meeting at Three Oaks. There I was the guest of various members of the Blakesley family. Leaving Galleon on October the 26th, I spent three or four days in Chicago, visiting the saints in the daytime and speaking in the evenings. Brother J. M. Terry was then in charge of our work there and accompanied me on various excursions about the city. With some members of the family of Elder F. G. Pitt, I also found pleasant occupation in hunting up some old-time Plano people, many of whom had followed the fortunes of the Deer Plough Company when it removed from the little village to the metropolis as it expanded into the immense business industry it is today, operating under the fostering care of the International Harvester Company. An all-day outing with Brother Terry at the Field Museum proved a memorable, a memorable day for both of us. It was spent in pleasant conversation as we stored our minds with new sights and facts and examined the many articles of great worth and interest gathered together in that splendid building, one of the edifices built for the World's Fair in 1893 and donated to the city for museum purposes through the generosity of the Marshall Field family. During my stay in Chicago, I also enjoyed the hospitality of Brethren E.E. E. and Eric Johnson and Fred M. Pitt, Sister Grace Johnson and others. A pillow served for my repose during the night ride homebound, which place I reached at noon on the last day of October. Next heading, Officiating Minister. The day after the 67th anniversary of my birth, 
I had the privilege of performing the church marriage rites which united G. Robinson, Grenawait and Alice May Atkinson. They were both estimable young people of Lamona. She was the daughter of Brother Levy and connected with the history. Sorry, let me start that again. She was the daughter of Brother Levy and Sister Susanna Atkinson mentioned in connection with the history of my trip to Nevada years before. Since then, the family had lived in Kiwani, later on a state, sorry, later on a farm south of Lamoni near the Missouri state line, and finally had moved into that village itself. As I write of them, memory records the sad fact that they suffered the loss of their only son, a young man of fine promise whose death was caused by a fall from his horse. The father died a few years since, and only a few months ago the mother followed him. There are left but the daughters, some four or five of them. Brother and sister Atkinson were loyal and faithful saints, and I always kept in touch with them until they were laid away in the flesh to await the coming of the resurrected of Israel. A few days after this marriage event, I made a visit to Mallard in northern Iowa for the purpose of dedicating of dedicating another church i stopped off at des moines on the way going and coming as was my wont preaching to and visiting among the saints there at mallard i was met by elder c e butterworth and edmund ford the dedication took place in the forenoon of november twelfth brother butterworth assisting in the services and speaking in the afternoon while i occupied again at night on this occasion, I met two old-time Plano friends, Harris Cook and Fred Hartshorn, the latter being the uncle of my nephew, Albert A. Smith. Only this last spring, I was pleased to meet Edmund Ford again. Some of these friends at Mallard have passed away ere now, and indeed I know not how many of the little band may still be among the living. There I was, the guest overnight, of brother Joseph Fitch, a widower with two grown sons and a housekeeper daughter, whose amazing proportions would remind an imaginative man of the goddess of liberty, so tall and broad was she. The girl may have been conscious of her unusual size, but she had learned to carry herself well and was much cultivated, was much cultivated and attractive than some of her better-looking sisters, bravely bearing what some might have deemed a misfortune. She was sufficiently talented in music to sing and play well, and took a willing and intelligent part in the services, being entitled to a great deal of credit for their success. Trying to keep track of such of the family, I have learned that this girl married a young farmer but was unfortunately soon overtaken by illness and died some years ago. The father has also passed away. I'm going to leave that there and continue in the next episode. Thank you for listening.